uh, Chris Alexander, he, he died during COVID, 2022, 2021. He wrote a book in the 70s called A Pattern Language, um, which has sort of cult following. And um, in the book, he looks at um, vernacular architecture from around the world and tries to find the kind of common solutions to common problems that crop up when designing or building houses. And the common solutions he calls patterns. Uh, for instance, the, he and colleagues have one called sheltering roof, which is basically suggesting giving buildings decent ease so rain doesn't get into the walls. It's kind of obvious stuff, but uh, when we ignore it, it's cold. Uh, my own background is in partly in software development, and in that field also we've adopted uh, Christopher Alexander's notion of patterns, and patterns and anti-patterns. And patterns, again, are kind of typical ways of solving common design problems, and anti-patterns are common traps that come up. In computer programming, an anti-pattern is a, a seemingly obvious way of solving a common problem that might look attractive on the surface, but will eventually cause you trouble. Or you might fall into it, fall into an anti-pattern without paying any particular attention, but you will eventually pay for it. I think that Tower of Babel is a kind of anti-pattern for us. But if that's so, what is the trap that we are being warned against here? I've seen that lots of people read the story as a sort of um, just-so story, but like uh, Rudyard Kipling's uh, How the Elephant Got His Trunk or something, you know, a quaint folk tale about how did we come to have so many different languages. But I think there's a lot more going on here, and it's, it's probably better to approach it more like a parable of Jesus that has depths to it. Lots of the Old Testament stories, I think, want to be... Uh, experienced a little bit like movies, with your kind of visual imagination engaged. Uh, and I think to get an idea of what's going on, it's good to pay attention to the, the odd little details and the connection points with other stories. Uh, hands up who has um, gone to see the um, Barbie movie. That's heaps more than happened on the They're more, as I was saying, they're more resistant maybe to the kind of massive marketing. <laughs> we've got for that. Our family went last, last Sunday, I think. And in the opening scene, many of you will remember, there's some drab little girls dressed in bright brown, uh, playing and being mums with these old-fashioned dolls. And then suddenly, gigantic Barbie turns up, uh, like a monolith in 2001, and the little girls' worlds are kind of turned upside down. Uh, in some ways, a very disturbing image, but there's a funny little detail which, um, which I think says a lot. That Barbie and little girl number one are both wearing glasses. Um, and of course it's not that the child actress is short-sighted and just happens to be wearing glasses that day. It's a deliberate directorial choice making a connection between Barbie and the child. There's a kind of identity established. I want to be you. Um, I'm not clever enough to notice these things. I just stole that from a, a Christian Reformed Church pastor Paul that way. But, um, <laughs> it's the kind of thing my wife is, you know, is excellent at, uh, at noticing. So, what are, the, what are the sort of suggestive details and connections in the, in the Babel story? A couple I noticed, and I'm sure there are other ones, are the bricks and the bitumen. It makes a particular point of mentioning what the city and the tower are constructed of. But for stones, they had bricks, and for mortar, they had bitumen. So why mention the building materials? The Torah, the first five books of the, New Test of the Old Testament, are, are a kind of integrated whole, and there's lots of repeated stories, um, events that happen at different scales in a kind of patterned sort of fashion. And um, 
It's a bit like the sort of fractals I mentioned a few weeks ago um, here. Bitumen, or tar, or pitch, asphalt, turns up just a few times in the Torah. Not heaps, but it is interesting where it does. Two key mentions, I think, are when uh, God commands Noah to build the ark, he's to line it with bitumen to waterproof it against the flood. Second key time, I think, is um, when Moses' mum makes a little ark for Moses to float in in the Nile. She's told to, uh, to, to line it with pitch or tar or bitumen to protect it from the water. Does anyone remember Moses' mum's name? That sister was, sister was Miriam. Mum was Jochebed. I couldn't have remembered it, but I will remember it from now on. <laughs> yeah, and as I said, the boat, the little boat that Moses is in is also described as an ark, so it's a kind of interesting, interesting sort of connection points between these different stories. But bitumen is clearly about waterproofing. There's a hint of something going on here about protecting ourselves, or protect, people protecting themselves from the danger of flooding. And in the narrative in Genesis, the flood and its aftermath immediately precede this section. So it kind of makes sense that people might want to build something to protect themselves against the possibility of another flood. The other detail I mentioned was the brick. Brick, brick also turns up in a few spots in the Torah. At the start of the book of Exodus, the Pharaoh, as you will remember, forces the Hebrew slaves to make bricks to build his cities. So they have a kind of whiff of tyranny and slavery about them. And then a little bit later on, once the um, Israelites are uh, rescued from Egypt, and Moses gets the Ten Commandments, God tells Moses how the people should worship him when they make sacrifices on altars. He says, you can just make your altars out of earth or dirt, or if you want to make something slightly more permanent, use rough stones, but don't use brick. There's, there's something bad about brick. It reminds me a little bit of um, Pink Floyd's song, Another Brick in the Wall, most of you will know, I think. Bricks have that sense of uniformity, modular, inflexible units. Ideally, every brick is like every other one. You can make a, a really strong, stable, regular, orderly structure with bricks. And going back to the story with those resonances in, the people are building a city and a tower, and there's a lot of uniformity there. One language, one people, regular bricks. You might see it as a, a picture of too much order, a kind of an attempt at a perfect system with a hint of tyranny about it. In the context, it's clearly a way of talking about the Babylonian Empire. Maybe empires everywhere. Maybe also uh, towers everywhere, the Sky Tower, the Burj Khalifa, any others. And I noticed that um, imperial systems everywhere, like uniformity of language, think of uh, Latin with Rome, or the uh, British Empire with English, or the, or the present efforts of the Chinese uh, government to enforce Mandarin. And as a, um, a little aside, by contrast, the history of Christian mis missions features to a surprising degree a flourishing of linguistic diversity. You can see that Gambian scholar Lamin Sanek on this topic if you're interested. I'm very interested. But. And it's, it strikes me that it's not totally unreasonable to... Oh, what was that there? Sorry? Oh, was it great? Sorry. Lost track of my slides. It's, it strikes me it's not totally unreasonable to go down this path. It is a dangerous world. Disasters happen. Floods happen. Dry land is surrounded by sea. Time and chance are always waiting to tear down our most treasured creations, and building a watertight system is one possible response. Can we build something so strong and robust that we'll escape the chaos of the world? Can we set up our lives so securely that we won't be affected by 
time. And uh, as in the, the ziggurat a couple of slides back, there's another way of looking at this tower that reaches up to heaven. Um, you can see it as a kind of human-made mountain. The Bible is sort of artificial mountain. And uh, the Bible is chock full of mountains, I was surprised to learn. But so often um, the place where people meet God. Uh, some examples, Tim mentioned the other week about the Garden of Eden itself can be seen as a mountain. It's got four rivers flowing out in different directions. It definitely has that elevated quality. Do you remember where Moses was when he was commissioned to free the Israelite slaves by the voice in the burning bush? Anyone remember, anyone remember what mountain that was? Not Sinai. Corey. What about uh, when he received the Ten Commandments? That was Sinai, that's right. And the architectural drawings of the temple. Um, I wonder if you remember um, this amazing story when, when Elijah meets God after he's been chased by Ahab's soldiers. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. I just love that story. And it's, to me it's one of those spots where the Old Testament really does uh, had quite a lot to say to us about the character of God. And finally, um, Jesus, when, when that event we call the Transfiguration, when Jesus met his tupuna, Elijah and Moses, it was up the mountain. Like uh, George and Mika, who are up the mountain uh, presently, lucky beggars. Um, so I think there's a potential contrast here between an artificial structure that humans build for themselves and the sort of natural mountain we can climb and find God. And this, to me, this connects with a, a kind of um, a strain throughout the Bible of suspicion about civilization, particularly about empire. You'll remember that it's the murderer Cain who makes the first city in Genesis 3. And I think the suspicion extends to centralizing forces, sort of totalizing systems and utopias of all kinds, really. Maybe you remember um, King David was not supposed to take a census of his people or the Jubilee Law that was supposed to give back to each family its ancestral plot of land. The idea being that the wealth of society wouldn't all get concentrated in the sort of top of the pyramid, but spread out to the bottom. Or the Gleaning Law, which insisted that farmers not harvest right to the edge of the fields. There had to be some kind of slack, bit of margin, room for diversity, for edge cases, for ambiguity, but somehow without losing the centre. If that um, waterproof, man-made mountain is the anti-pattern we're supposed to avoid, or be suspicious of at least, what is the right way? I think it's, it's not exactly the opposite. The Bible is nowhere excited about a total lack of water or the, the chaos of the flood. And while the Bible is ambivalent about the city, it's not entirely negative. As lots of people noted, the Bible starts with a garden, but it ends with a city. I found the uh, passages that we read from um, Revelation today, really incredible. They, they pull so much of the stuff together. I don't know if they had Babel in mind or not, but they reconfigure a whole lot of the same imagery. Uh, but in place of um, kind of building the city up from the ground, the picture in Revelation of, is of receiving a city that comes down from heaven. And in the middle of the city is a tree. The tree, to me, represents a different sort of order. Different sort of order than you get from a tower or bricks. 
Also, you have the, the nations kind of scattered over the earth, streaming back into the city. And their differences aren't obliterated. They each have some kind of glory to bring in. And each get to eat from the 12 kinds of fruit and be healed by the, the healing of the leaves on the tree. You'll remember in the, um, in the Genesis um, reading, the key thing the builders wanted to do was to, to make a name for themselves. They wanted to secure a stable identity, avoid being scattered. By contrast, in Revelation, uh, instead of making a name for ourselves, we have the idea of, of receiving a name, a new name from above. Those who follow the lamb that was slain, the followers of Jesus who stick it out through suffering, will receive a name, like it says. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. As I said, naming is about identity, who I am. So the final challenge I kind of hear in the Babel story is, will I construct some kind of watertight identity for myself, whatever that is, or am I opening, open to receiving a name from above, an identity from above? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Matthew. Why don't we just take a minute of quiet to listen to God for what's being spoken to you and what Matthew shared in those scriptures and something to hang on to. And after a minute, I'll encourage you to share that with your neighbour. You might want to pray for your neighbour um, if there's something that comes up out of that. What's in these scriptures, Matthew's reflections on them? Mm-hmm particularly there for you from God this morning.